0: FM Literature, where we take a look at literature coming from many, many different sources, overseas, local, as much local as we possibly can, because as somebody told me just this morning, she said, you had so many exciting things happening on the literary front here in South Africa, and if she also went on to see, in fact, it was Janice Warman who said uh, if, if they had a three-hour literature programme in England, she would be a very happy woman. Well, um, we're a very happy people that we've got one right here. Lovely. So, doing our bit for local authors. Born in Durban, Mr. Mander has a very long history as a writer he did a BA in English and philosophy back in 1972 and when he was imprisoned in 1976 for political activism, he took the opportunity to hone his writing skills. Later on, he won a drum story competition in 1980, he won a UK bursary in 1991, and has subsequently written a number of books, including the award winning The Last Colours of the Chameleon. Well, he's been honing his skills some more recently because he has uh, just recently published a very newest title. It's called The Texture of Shadows. And we have him on the line. Hi, Mandela.
1: Hi, Nancy, and hello to your SAFM listeners.
0: Mm, absolutely, lovely to have you with us. And you may have heard that there's been a little bit of debate on this program about, uh, you know, whether or not we should be talking to local writers, international writers. What's your feeling? Do you feel, do you think that um, that our local writers are not given enough coverage?
1: I yeah, I agree with the notion that local writers are not given enough coverage, and uh, there's so much that is coming out. Uh, from South African writers and I think that it needs, it needs airing if South Africans are going to know themselves really.
0: Yeah, yeah. the only way really is for us to, well it's not the only way I suppose we can chat and converse face to face but it's a wonderful thing to be able to read somebody else's experience in a Absolutely, book. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Well talking of experience, let's talk a little bit about your experience because um, I was confessing that I haven't managed to read your book cover to cover so I feel already slightly disadvantaged so I'm hoping that you're going to give me enough of the story to whet everybody's appetites without giving it away mm. but but I just just let's start with that because i'd really like to talk a little bit about your writing career but give us um, a synopsis if you can of the texture of shadows
1: the texture of shadows is a story of a uh, uh, guerrillas that infiltrate into south africa in 1989 at the time when south africa is on the cusp of uh, attaining its uh, independence or democratic Really, and uh, the guerrillas are carrying a trunk which is full of material that can be part of uh, the sustenance of the revolution, as it were, or sustenance for the continuation of the struggle inside South Africa, and. they land in KZN, which are still KwaZulu, uh, Kwa Zulu. and they uh, are met by Nerissa Rodriguez, who is actually the chaplain of the People's Army, and she's the one that is the main protagonist of the story, and it's through her guidance that uh, a lot of the action takes place inside South Africa. Mm.
0: Yes, a lot of action and a lot of mystery, because the the big mystery is what is in that trunk?
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't, I, don't I've me. kept the trunk uh, deliberately mysterious. Mm. I'm leaving uh, it to the reader, really, to decipher what it contains. But I would like to let the cat out of the bag and say that it contains the... It's like a, like a, a Rosetta Stone, really, on which... Uh, we have written the the legacy of the past and the possibility for the future to be to be done effectively really
0: you that sounds like a manifesto <laughs> <laughs>
1: not so much a manifesto no, as no. a it's a trunk that that the people as they read the story they'll they'll be able to say this is possibly what is in the trunk yeah. I've left it deliberately uh, unresolved
0: there. Yeah, well I think it's an exciting thing for a reader to be able to use their own interpretation and and read it in the way that they see it. Absolutely. As it's quoted very very often write about what you know it feels very much like you've written about what you know. What what were you doing in 1989?
1: In 89 I was still in exile I was uh, actually in the UK at that time but it was a time when i was also involved there was a lot of traveling into southern africa uh... we were part of a delegation that went to zimbabwe to meet with uh, the african writers there there was a lot of uh, ferment inside the country and we were quite busy in the ANC. uh... i was in the ANC office in london and that's where uh of the thinking of what uh, finally became the text of shadows that is
0: one of the things about being a writer is that it's a gift in as much as you can be putting things down but back in the 1989 and all those years leading up to it when you were you know when you were studying and then when you became politically active yourself were you writing these things down? Because things were changing on a daily basis, some things that one would have perhaps even have been nervous of writing things down. Mm. What were you able to record?
1: Well, I kept a lot of things in my head, really. Um, I kept a lot of things in my head in all the travels, in all the years I was outside of South Africa. One of the things that I've always um, believed in is uh the quote by david Hare, who says an exile travels the world over carrying in his mind the image of a perfect universe for me i was always carrying that perfect universe which is south africa and i always have always wanted to reflect on it to write about it to express it and uh, to make sure that i do not lose the textures uh of what the lineaments of the country. And so that's how uh, the books that got to be written from uh, the first one which was tenderness of blood all the way to uh, the textures of shadow of shadows. Mm. That's how they were conceived. They, they were there. I walked around with them everywhere I went.
0: Ew. That's that's a, a marathon of storage in the mind, and very difficult to sort of unpack it. You know, it's so easy to go to a computer and open a file, and there it all is, neatly filed. But when you go back into your mind, mm. you very often find that your mind has been blurred, or things have changed, or your memories may be deceitful. How difficult was it to re um, to rediscover all that?
1: one of the things we did or I did was to well keep in touch with what was going on inside the country and as you are saying if you've got too much on your mind it could end uh, end up being clutter. Mm. and so the exercise of writing is to pare things down to try and see and select what is important what can be said what can be writable because There's a lot that can remain in the arena of notions, really, but which is un-unwritable. And so you make a choice. And uh, I I also listened quite a lot to people. I listened to people coming from inside the country. On a number of occasions, we had festivals uh, such as the Culture and Resistance in 1982, and then we had uh, another one in London, Zabalaza, and one in what you call Casa, or culture in another South Africa, in the Netherlands, where you meet with South African artists, South African writers, South African uh, you know, uh, activists, and then you're able to glean from them what is going on inside the country. And you're also trying as much as possible to keep in touch with the idiom of what is going on inside the country because i think that's very important
0: we're talking to Mandela Langa He has written his latest book is called The Texture of Shadows. Mandela, we're going to be talking some more in just a minute. Stay with us. It's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks. SFM literature here on SFM. We're talking presently to Mandela Langer, who is the author of The Texture of Shadows. It's his very latest book, a book that he's been carrying in his head together with others for, for a very long time. Mandela, if we may, can we go back to the book and back to the characters, back to these these guys, the guys from the, uh, the army who the gorillas who are coming back who have names like well the commander is commander mahogany and the others have names like ebony and hickory linden and pomegranate and sinkwood all of which makes them feel very and baobab makes them feel very exotic these sort of as it were nom de guerre is it is it better for them to have those sort of names
1: i i chose for for the novel they might not have existed in terms of mk i was in mk myself Mm -hmm. and the we had to have de girls and uh, you were given a name and uh, it became you, Mm -hmm. you know, you lived it and uh, you uh, operated on it and wherever you went, you were were known by that name I chose the names uh, because I wanted to deal with the possibility of the names uh, reflecting growth, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: reflecting something that can be of use that can be that can be made uh, tanned, honed and be made to build something and uh, there were never, there might have been some M.K. comrades called Mahog- Mahogany or Hickory but these are the names that I came up with myself and uh, it made it easier for me then to have a character that would more or less align himself or reflect the sensibility of the name Hickory became somebody very strong, and as you well know, Hickory wood and mahogany are very strong woods.
0: Yes, absolutely. I thought they were rather lovely and lyrical names, and tamarind and pistachio. It's it's. Mm. <laughs> what was your name?
1: My name was. <laughs> you laugh at this. My name was Patel. <laughs> oh really? Yes.
0: Now, did you have any say over your choice of name or were you given a name and that was it?
1: We, when I went to Mozambique and uh, I was given the name, there was no possibility of uh, saying, no, I need a different name. Mm. That was my name and uh, throughout time I was known as Patel.
0: Yeah. And does it, um, does it, every time you hear that name, does it take you back?
1: It takes me back. Every mm-hmm. time I, I read anything that has got Patel, I remember that my name was Patel. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of my comrades still kid me uh, about that. In fact, uh, uh, Comrade Paolo Jordan, whenever, sometimes he, we meet, he assumes, <laughs> uh, uh, calls me by that name uh, to make, you know, a joke of it. But I think in some way also... It's a way of acknowledging that we all went through a certain time that was very important mm. to the development of South Africa's democracy.
0: Yeah, indeed, to be a, a fellow comrade, a, a badge of honor. The, in some way, well, not in some ways, in every way, you've taken yourself right back here into the book. Was it, um, but, but it's, you have a wonderfully lyrical, it's not just in the names, you have a wonderfully lyrical way of writing. Is it almost romanticized?
1: I won't say it's romanticized. In fact, uh, there, there's a lot of detail that might not have been uh, come into the book. The lyricism, well, uh, my grounding, I suppose, was in poetry, but in writing prose, uh, I suppose that comes in uh, without my uh, really deliberately uh, trying to write in a lyrical form. I think once you try to write in a lyrical form, that's when you make a mistake, then you sound cloying and twee and uh, overly sentimental. But going back to my experience, to my time, I think that South Africa still has to listen and hear and uh, be aware of the story of what happened to people who went into exile because there is a lot that gets to be said that is uh, spectacularly, you know, fabrication mm. when it comes to the lives and lives of, uh, of those years when we were in M.K. My novel is an attempt also to humanize those moments, to give effect to the fact that there were people who laugh and love, who make mistakes, who um, are afraid at night and uh, by day. They, are, they also love to see nature like everyone
2: else.
0: Being in exile, of course, you you talk about carrying all these stories in your head all that time. And living in exile, of course, you were living another sort of life altogether, which also had to be lived. So in in some ways, almost sort of schizophrenic. You know, what you were carrying in your head, that that image of a perfect South Africa and the stories of what had been and what you were doing, as well as another sort of life that you were living. Very uh, schizophrenic, can I say, bipolar?
1: Oh, yeah. No, certainly... In fact, uh, any exile that will say that they went always living in that kind of binary circumstance would be telling a uh, cross and truth. You were, your consciousness was inside the country in South Africa. Your uh, cerebral mind was dealing with what had to be dealt with to make sure that at the end of the day, wherever you might be. You ret- you'll return to that reality, and there were times, lot of times, when when things happened, when uh, comrades passed on, when people died from malaria or from enemy action, you did know that uh, you had a bigger role to play because you would also have to report back to the families of those comrades what had happened uh, to them, and so it was a struggle in exile you struggle against forgetting but you also want to make sure that you do not become so hung up on what is going on inside the country that you cannot do your job
2: mm-hmm.
0: before we leave the book because i would like to get onto your writing career and how that's grown and what your influences were mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that the the protagonist is uh, is the chaplain narisa rodriguez who writes at the beginning Dear Mr. President, it's a, yes. a, a letter to dear Mr. President, tell us a little bit about Norissa, where she's coming from and who she is.
1: Narisa is a composite of many, many uh, very brave women that I've seen and come across inside the country and in exile. One of the women that I first met in 1980 when I was in exile in Lesotho was uh, Aunt Phyllis Phyllis Naidu, who really uh, helped a lot of us who were young, possibly getting lost in the shuffle, and so and who had also survived a bomb blast. So when I crafted the character of Nerissa, I had her in mind, but I had a lot of other women who, unfortunately, sometimes become relegated to second class when it comes to what I can call quote-unquote the spoils of of uh, the what I can call the uh, dividend of of liberation you find that people are very strong leaders in their own right and then when uh, certain things change when perhaps their husbands who were in jail come out they are then no longer they are just uh, yeah, part of the uh, infrastructure, really, but never in any uh, leadership position.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: These are the women that uh, I fused, I distilled into into Nerissa. She's Nerissa Rodriguez. She's a chaplain of the People's Army. Uh, Rodriguez is a surname. She's an Indian of Gowen origin. So that's how. She comes uh, to be that name.
0: Mm. Mm. There's so many stories within the story here, aren't there? Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting. i would just like to come back to your writing because I'm fascinated by the... Well, first of all, I think that you were you studied uh, at Fort Hare. You, studied, you did a BA in English and Philosophy, but within a few...
1: I, I didn't finish at Fort Hare. Okay. We had a... Uh, in 1970, 1972, there was the famous... Uh, Tiro affair when Unkopose Tiro stood up to uh, to the authorities in Tefluo and there were widespread student protests, and so we were caught up in that also at Porte. And so after 1972, I left and I went to teach in Bamashu as a privately paid teacher,
0: and it was during that. So you never actually completed those studies. No, I never did. D- has that has that stayed with you? Do you, how do you feel about that?
1: About about uh, forte.
0: Yeah, about never having completed those studies.
1: It doesn't really faze me because um, every time when we were at forte, I was I. I have tended to study, read a lot more possibly than what is good for me. And uh, the education that we were getting while at the certification level uh, might open doors. I just never really did take uh, degrees and certificates very seriously. Having seen and having come across some of the products from some of these universities
0: it sounds nonetheless like there was a great deal of learning for you to do outside of the of a university in in the life that you were leading it sounds like there was a great deal of learning to be done until it was you were put under arrest and I think that you went to jail for 100 odd days
1: yes I was uh, I was I was arrested at the border of Botswana and and, and South Africa in Zeras with a couple of friends and uh, I was charged with uh, Trying to leave the country without a passport. And uh, there was a trial. Fortunately, I had a brother, uh, Pius Langer, who was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he mobilized uh, some of, of uh, his colleagues, who then defended me. And I was let off on a technicality after that 101 days. Uh, but I was sentenced, uh, and, and we appealed, and uh, I skipped the country. Uh, on bail pending appeal
0: exciting stuff have you written your own autobiography
1: i am too close to myself to (laughs) write about myself (laughs)
0: well maybe somebody would like to sign up to do a biography for you because certainly you've got the material but uh, during that 101 days when you were in jail i think that you made a point of of trying to improve your writing skills what were you able to write what did you write
1: well, some of the prisoners were able to smuggle material, uh, paper, and, 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 and pens for us. And I was just able to reflect on the life that I had led and uh, the things I had seen and the encounters with the law or with the uh, brutality of the law. I uh, had been part of the Black Consciousness Movement by then, and I'd met a lot of uh, very, very important people who had influenced my thinking. And I'd come across a lot of writing uh, which I was able then to reflect on when I was, I, w- I was in prison.
0: What were your writing influences in the short time that you were at university? What, what were you reading that um, got to your mind? I think
1: the reading was very electi- eclectic. I read anything, you know, from... But my brother, Ben, introduced me to uh, African-American writers like James Baldwin, uh, Tony Morrison, Richard Wright, and, of course, our own uh, African writers, including uh, the histories, uh, Jomo Kenyatta facing Mount Kenya, Googie, um, uh, our poets, some of them who were in exile, people like Willy, Yurapeti, Josie Seale. So it was very eclectic and very, um, you know, influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Black Panther Party uh, had a lot of writers, people like Eldridge Cleaver, uh, Bobby Seale. Yeah, those were some of the writings, and of course poetry by Leroy Jones, who later became Imamo Amiri Paraga. Hmm.
0: I'm sure it's always easier to write as you get older because you've got more to work with. If you know what I mean, you've got more material one way or another, both in, in the, the life that you've lived, but also in the the books that you've been able to read, the material that you've been able to absorb. What advice, I mean, whilst we're talking about local writers and the possibility of somebody perhaps writing your biography, um, what advice would you have for a writer? You know, I was looking at uh, a list of the books written by Wilbur Smith just recently. I've got it here. He's written goodness knows how many books, almost one a year since, uh, since 1964. It's not necessarily about quantity, it's about the ability, it's about having a story to say... What, what has driven you and what advice might you have for somebody else wanting to mm. be a successful writer?
1: You know, Tony Morrison once said that uh, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write. That for me has been the um, cornerstone of, of, my, of my thinking. Much more importantly, I think South African writers, especially young people, have to read as much as possible read until they get a headache really mm. because it's only in reading that you will start have an idea of what it is that you must yourself write read and also there is this thing that I wrote about in one of the articles over the weekend of hurrying to publish mm. without having um, you know studied and uh, owned the craft you can never be you can never be a practiced writer until you write and even even people who write bestsellers know that at the end of the day they have to work at it and work at it until they feel that something is coming out.
0: I think that's very sound advice, being in a hurry to publish. I mean, I was mentioning earlier that there's a book just about to come out written by June, June Steenkamp about her own daughter, Reva. Before that there was another book about Oscar and you think how is it that people are putting out books so quickly? And how long did it take you? I mean, I'm sure you're going to say something like 30 years, but how long did it physically take you to write The Texture of Shadows? Mm.
1: The Texture of Shadows was uh, an idea that, of course, as, as I've said earlier, that uh, I took some years having it percolating in my mind. But it was in my discussion with uh, June, my wife, that uh, she started, she said to me that you must put in place some of the things that have happened, some of the things that you think could have happened, and some of the things that you want, you would have liked to see happening in terms of of writing. This was shortly after uh, the last book, Mm. uh, The Lost Colors of the Chameleon. And I was still struggling at the time with some of the things that were happening in terms of uh, MK today in terms of uh, the memories, people who were dying left, right, and center. And so I felt I owed it possibly to some of the people I'd been with in the trenches to write something that can start to make sense to them and start to celebrate those lives.
0: And we still don't really know what's in the trunk, except that we don't know <laughs> that somewhere locked away in there is a utopic South Africa, a perfect South Africa. Are we reaching it? Are we getting there? How do you feel?
1: I think that uh, some of the turbulences that you are facing we're seeing in South Africa, South Africa, or the notion or this thing that we call South Africa is still very young, It's 20 years old, and it's still very, very erratic. Full of temples, hormonal uh, eruptions. It will settle down. It will get together, get itself uh, together. We will make mistakes, of course, but somewhere along the line, I've got a lot of faith. South Africans always uh, step back from the abyss. I think we'll step back from the abyss.
0: Hopefully we will, and I think, um, you know, whilst we're busy sailing back from the abyss, I suppose what we need to do is be looking back to see where we're going from. They do say that that's the way to go. Mandalanga, thank you so much, and very best of luck with this book, and very best of luck with all those that are to, to, still to come. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Thanks thank you so much, It's a pleasure. Thank you. The Texture of Shadows, it's a novel, it's by Amanda Langer, and it's published by Picador. And don't forget, I'll be giving out all the information uh, of the books and the titles that we've heard about right at the end of the show. But uh, if you would like, this first hour is podcast, if you'd like to hear that interview again, www.safm.co.za, go to the podcast next week. on SFM Literature if the titles The Sign and the Seal A Quest for the Lost Ark of the Covenant Fingerprints of the Gods Underworld and Supernatural mean anything at all to you then you will probably know that our next guest is best-selling UK author he's Graham Hancock He has a brand new title, Magicians of the Gods, due for publication very soon. But he's in South Africa right now to give a a couple of day-long seminars, both in Johannesburg. Well, his Johannesburg one was yesterday. The next one is, in fact, in Cape Town next Saturday. And I'll give you all those details in a minute. Um, But before we find out a little bit about his new book, let me just tell you that Graham Hancock, for those of you who don't know, his books have sold more than 5 million copies worldwide. Translated into 27 languages, public lectures, radio, television, uh, two major TV series for Channel 4 in the UK, um, put his ideas before audiences of tens of millions and he's become recognised as an unconventional thinker who raises controversial questions about humanity's past. Certainly uh, certainly controversial, but nothing if not fascinating. We've got him on the line from Johannesburg. Graham Hancock, lovely to have you with us on the show.
2: Hi. Oh, nice. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice yeah. to nice to talk to you.
0: Welcome to South Africa. Not your first, presumably not your first visit.
2: No, I visited South Africa many times before, usually for book tours to to speak about my books. But uh, on a couple of occasions for research, I had a particularly memorable research trip in two thousand and four uh, for my. I was researching for my book, Supernatural, and I was looking at rock art, uh, the sand rock art in the Drakensberg and the Cedarburg, and just had an absolutely amazing time.
0: Yes, well, I would have imagined, why wouldn't you come to the cradle of mankind to do research and the sort of work that you do? Um, Graham can we just get a little bit before we get on to magicians of the gods which I know is imminent yeah. let's just find out a little bit about you in fact you you started as a journalist um, yeah. you seem to be fascinated by all sorts of things I was looking at your website where you ask questions like who owns the moon now we know what killed the ancient ice princess and why she had that marijuana California archaeologists archeolo- uncover 90 year old movie prop and 200,000 year old arm bone suggests that the Neanderthals threw weapons how do these questions come to you
2: well actually what you're looking at there is the news desk of my website Um, we we make a point on my website of of linking to current news items that are relevant to my interests, and that's what that's what that is that is all about Um, I I think the sort of common theme in my work, going back 30 plus years now, has been an outsider looking in. I, I'm I'm standing on the fringes, uh, trying to give an alternative, a different take on subjects that uh, the mainstream covers in a completely different way. Um, Back when I was a journalist writing about current affairs, I, I wrote, for example, a book about foreign aid called Lords of Poverty. That was back in the 1980s when foreign aid was still the flavor of the month, but I, I found from my travels and my research that foreign aid was often disastrous and was keeping people in poverty rather than bringing them out of poverty, and the only people who were getting rich on it were the aid workers themselves. You know, so I was giving a different slant on a subject that everybody then approved of. Um, and when I went on to start investigating historical mysteries, uh, which I did from the late eighties 80s, 80s onwards, um, again, I was I was taking an askance view at uh, positions on which established experts said things were one way and I was saying there was another way and particularly considering the possibility of a forgotten episode in the human story that there may be a great lost civilization way way back in our past. So I think that's my role and that's my project is to give a thoroughly researched, reasoned, well-argued case for alternative points of view that the mainstream just normally won't consider.
0: Alternative points of view, um, when we talk about the mainstream and we talk about experts, presumably we're talking about the scientists, the, the academics, the, the people who have, you know, long grey beards and many years of, of work behind them. Yeah,
2: in, in my case, the, ba- the main experts I come up against are, are archaeologists, mm-hmm. and I have huge respect for archaeologists, and they do fantastic detailed work, and I couldn't write any of my books if I didn't thoroughly read their books. Um, but I, I think it's normal in science to have a reference frame, and to write within that reference frame and sometimes that reference frame gets in the way of accepting or considering new possibilities and new facts and that's where an outsider like me possibly has a role to play and that's what i've tried to do Mm.
0: is there ever a right and a wrong answer i mean isn't it all hypothetical one way or another we can never prove anything (laughs)
2: i think the past is is massively hypothetical yes i mean that's one of the problems i have with archaeology and history is that they they present the past as something understood something cut and dried something set in stone uh and it isn't really a recent past where we have massive amount of documentary evidence that we can refer to we can be fairly sure about what happened although even then the deception of the actors and the players in the drama of the recent past may have misled us uh, remarkably but the further back we go into the past is particularly if we go back beyond 5,000 years ago up to 5,000 years ago we have written texts sometimes scarce, but nevertheless they exist, the written texts of the ancient Egyptians, of the Sumerians, and so on. And and this at least provides us with some framework to get a sense of what was going on. But before 5,000 years ago, we don't have any written texts at all, and therefore what we must base our understanding of the past on is fragmentary evidence that can be dug up in archaeological sites. And what I find is that the further back we go, the more the past becomes like a fairy tale, uh, which is which is a projection of archaeologists' ideas about what the past should be, rather than necessarily what the past actually was. And in that in that landscape, I think there's room, even need, uh, for an alternative point of view, which isn't towing the party line, but which is but which is considering um, possibilities that, that that the mainstream may regard as outrageous. And that's certainly the case with the possibility of a lost civilization. Uh, Most mainstream archaeologists will scoff in their sleeves if you suggest that there might actually have been such a thing as Atlantis by by any other name. Uh, But I think that's a prospect we need to take very seriously.
0: Mm. Well, it's certainly an exciting journey and, uh, you know, looking at things through very different lenses. Tell us about Magicians of the Gods, because this is what you are here to discuss.
2: Um, well, here I'm myself, here haven't... to discuss a number of things. I, oh. have, I have wide-ranging interests. I'm going to be giving four uh, lectures back-to-back during a full-day series of presentations in, in Cape Town oh. on Saturday the 25th, and mm-hmm. one of those, for example, will be on the subject of what, what I call the War on Consciousness. I have a great interest in psychedelics and in altered states of consciousness, and I believe that psychedelics have actually played a huge role in historical civilizations that has been neglected by mainstream history and i I believe that in our society today we have a kind of rigid control on consciousness which is masquerading as freedom Uh, we we say we live in democracies we think we're free but actually in many ways we're not free to make conscious choices in in one direction or, or another and that particularly applies to the decision of adults to use psychedelics um... this should be a personal decision of the adult as long as he or she does not get in the face of other people and cause them trouble after all our consciousness is the most intimate the most personal the most sapient part of ourselves and I don't see why the state has a right to tell us what we can do with our own consciousness while doing no harm to others mm. so that's an area where we really don't have freedom so I'll be giving a talk about that called the war on consciousness I'll before, be giving...
0: before you move on to the next to- topic yeah. um, have you in, in your research have you tried psychedelics to prove a point to know what you're talking about
2: of course mm. uh, yes when I when I researched my book supernatural natural, which is all about shamanism and altered states of consciousness. I went down to the Amazon, uh, and I drank ayahuasca, the the vine of souls, as it's called, which is a powerful visionary brew, uh, with shamans in the Amazon. That was way back in 2004, but since then I've continued to work with ayahuasca. I have five sessions of ayahuasca every year, and I find it an important part of my personal work and my personal development. And I think it's outrageous that I have to go to South America in order to be able to drink that legally whereas in my home country, England or indeed here in South Africa, I'm treated like a child by the authorities who tell me that I can't take responsibility for decisions over my own consciousness and can't uh, drink this psychedelic brew. Uh, I just think there's something really fundamentally wrong with that, that way of thinking and I, I actually feel it's a grotesque breach of human rights. If we're not sovereign over our own consciousness, then we're actually not sovereign over anything at all adults is all just a sham. Uh, so I feel quite quite strongly about mm-hmm. that, and I do continue, continue to work with psychedelics, and I celebrate the fact that the medical community now I've just come away from speaking at a conference in New York uh, where, which has been looking at the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics uh, for example in, in dealing with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and the results are really stunning and I think we are beginning to see a sea change in attitudes to this controversial controversial mm-hmm. issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Well alternative was the the word you use it seems very apt moving on from the war on consciousness four uh, subjects for discussion back to back after the, after the Consciousness
2: One is? Uh, I'm also, as a sideline, a novelist. Um, I'm mainly known for my nonfiction, but I also write novels, and I'm in the midst of a series of novels about the Spanish conquest of Mexico uh, called War God. Uh, these are epic adventure novels with an element of the supernatural. And I'll be giving a very short presentation, 25 minutes, half an hour or so, uh, about the Spanish conquest of Mexico, not so much about the novel, but about the, the extraordinary events where 490 Spaniards uh, overthrew the Aztec Empire, which could put 200,000 warriors into the field in the two years between 1519 and 1521, and thus changed the world, I would suggest, in a very dark direction, but changed the world nevertheless. I'll be talking about that. I'll be talking about the theme of my very first uh, non-fiction book, uh, Investigating a Historical Mystery, that was The Sign and the Seal. I'll be talking about the Ark of the Covenant and Ethiopia's claim to possess the Ark of the Covenant, and what that mysterious biblical object actually might be and last but not least uh, my major presentation running for the best part of two hours will be sharing all the new research that I've done in the last two years into the possibility of a lost civilization that's what I'm best known for Uh, Fingerprints of the Gods published in in 1995 was a a huge bestseller in in South Mm. Africa and many other countries and brought me to the attention of the public here Um, for many years I felt there wasn't a case for a secret but in the last five years there's been a huge amount of new evidence that has come out which the public are largely unaware of exciting new archaeological discoveries and evidence of a gigantic global cataclysm at the end of the last ice age which I feel uh, make, make it absolutely necessary to write a second book on the theme of a lost civilization not, a, not an update of fingerprints of the gods but a completely new book and I've been working on that for the past couple of years. It won't be published really soon. It probably okay. won't be published until the end of 2015. Okay, I'm in the midst of it at oh, the moment. So, and, and so What I'm mm. doing in in the South Africa uh, ev- in the, the Cape Town event on the 25th is I'm going to share with the audience all the exciting new evidence and research that I've gathered so far in the last couple of years. Wow,
0: that's going to be one packed auditorium I would imagine. There's a lot to be said there. Interesting, I see that um, in the information I was reading about you, you <laughs> mentioned there that you're also writing a, a novel, a fiction piece. What was there to lose, I asked myself, when my critics already described my factual books as fiction? I thought, well, yes,
2: absolutely. Yes. And, and, you know, I think, for, for, I regard myself first and foremost as a writer. I love writing non-fiction and I, I do so in as thorough a way as possible with detailed footnotes, with references. I don't hide my sources from my readers. I want them to investigate where oh. I got my information from. But it's fun to take a different tack in writing and that's what the War God series of novels about the Spanish conquest of Mexico is, there are some extraordinary ideas that I think can only be properly explored in fiction where you can get inside the head of the characters and and consider the possibility of supernatural entities such as the War God of the of the Aztecs uh, misleading and dabbling in the affairs of mankind and, and you know you can't do that in a non-fiction book but you can have great fun doing it in a novel and hopefully give the readers some fun reading it.
0: Lots of fun, definitely. Graham Hancock, we're which- talking to do stay with us we're going to take a quick break talking uh graham's talking about his magicians of the gods tour we'll give you the details you're listening to sfm literature we're talking to graham hancock graham two things mm-hmm. firstly we need to find out the details of your cape town tour so that if people would like to book they can find out more but i just want to go back to magicians of the gods which as you say is not necessarily an update it's something quite different it's a
2: completely new book the, but the it's exploring the same theme as fingerprints
0: is not. it because, because the difference is Fingerprints sounds like something so very tangible sounds like something very supernatural. Well,
2: there's a saying by Arthur C Clarke that at a certain point, um, w- when, when science reaches a certain point, it begins to look like magic. Oh. Uh, and that's really where the theme comes from. I, I think there's compelling evidence for a really advanced uh, ancient civilization of prehistory when our ancestors are thought to have been simple hunter gatherers. Quite the contrary, I think we had a, an advanced global civilization at that point, point. I've identified the smoking gun, the comet impact with the North American ice cap that caused a global cataclysm that geologists refer to as the younger Dryas, that got rid of that great civilization. I think there are 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 um, uh, d- definite pieces of evidence left behind, which indicate that that civilization had a science very different from our own, but nonetheless incredibly uh, effective and advanced. And that's the reason for the magicians in the title. So it isn't actually really supernatural mm. at all. It's playing on that Arthur C. Clarke quote about science beginning to look like magic.
0: You need to give us the details of where you're going to be giving these talks.
2: It's going to be at the Clock Tower Conference Center in South Arm Road, Cape Town, all day on Saturday 25th of October and ConsciousEvents.co.za is the website which will give full details and, and how to book and what all the talks are about, ConsciousEvents.co.za.
0: How do you manage to do all that back-to-back for discussions, without your head bursting with all the
2: information it it's pretty it's pretty exhausting i just spent the the whole day in johannesburg yesterday and in between each of the talks i sit down at a table and i and i interact directly with my audience i think it's important not to be aloof i mm. wouldn't be anybody if i didn't have my readers and i need to talk to them fortunately i get energy back from the audience and that's what keeps me going but eight eight hours on stage uh, is is a tough call for for anyone but I enjoy it, I had a good night's sleep last night and I'm back filled with energy again today and I hope it'll be the same after the Cape Town Filled with
0: energy, filled with magic, Graham Hancock, lovely, thank you so much for joining us, I'm going to give those details once again very best of luck and get some rest between now and Cape Town
2: Great to talk to you, thanks for having me on the show
0: Pleasure. Graham Hancock, Magicians of the Gods Tour, he's here to talk as you hear about many many things amongst them, the details, the research that's gone into his Magicians of the Gods Book due out only at the end of next year. The Clocktower Conference Centre on the 25th of October here in Cape Town. That's next Saturday. If you'd like to know more, www.consciousevents.co.za. Consciousevents.co.za.